I still have a couple of minutes. Uh, students have a habit of coming in just at the last moment, so maybe we ought to wait just a minute or so more. Well, this is the first time I think that we're actually beginning early, but such is the expectation of everyone looking forward to hearing Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who is a very uh, stalwart of British studies. We're always glad to have him back. And today he will be talking about uh, Brexit in its historical uh, perspective. Now, Jeffrey, as I think everyone knows, is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, uh, the London Review of Books, the New Republic, one could go on and on. Uh, he is also the author of several important books, uh, The Randlords, The Controversy of Zion, which won the National Jewish Book Award, and The Strange Death of Tory England. <laughs> Uh, perhaps a little bit premature because the, uh, the Brexit has a heavy uh, Tory component to it, or so it seems to me. Uh, he is also was one time the literary editor of the uh, the Spectator, uh, and as well as writing for the TLS and the New York Review of Books and so on. Uh, so Jeffrey, we very much look forward to hearing your interpretation of the historical romance as a component of Brexit. Jeffrey Whitcroft. Thank you very much indeed, Roger. And good day, ladies and gentlemen. As ever, it is a very great pleasure to be back in Austin, um, where I have paid so many happy visits in the past. I don't think anybody's going to be able to deconstruct easily the particular Anglo-American statement I'm making today, but those are the braces or suspenders of the Mar Maritime Cricket Club, the, the, uh, of Lords, the headquarters of cricket. And there is my Longhorns pin. Um, in 1962, the United Kingdom made its first application to join the European Economic Community, or Common Market, as everyone then called it. One English politician decided to oppose this bid, and that October he did so in a rousing speech which conjured up memories of the Great War battles at Gallipoli and Vimy Ridge. More than that, to join the EEC would mean the end of Britain as an independent European state, he said. I make no apology for repeating it. It means the end of a thousand years of history. There were echoes there of earlier phrases, some happier than others. In 1940, Winston Churchill had famously told the British to brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. But then he was facing an antagonist who had spoken of the thousand-year Reich. And yet there was something more striking about those particular thousand years of history. For a long time now, uh, since well before the referendum in June 2016, in which a majority of the British people voted to leave what is now the European Union, uh, and much more since then, 
Uh, those who call themselves Eurosceptics, but who might more accurately be called Europhobes, uh, mostly right-wing conservatives, passionately in favour of what we've come to call Brexit or British departure <coughs> from the European Union, have again and again invoked history or their versions of it. But the speaker in 1962 wasn't a Tory at all. He was Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the opposition, uh, a moderate social democrat leading the Labour Party, who would have doubtless liked to consider himself an internationalist and have repudiated any charge of jingoism or nativism. History is a very potent drug, above all national history. Uh, the 19th century French writer Ernst Renan said that to be a nationalist required two things, hatred of your neighbours and ignorance of your own history. <laughs> uh, the, the second of which may ostensibly be less nasty, but may also be even more dangerous. Certainly, much of modern <coughs> history is explained by another phrase. Giovanni Giolitti, the Italian prime minister a hundred years ago, said that countries were nourished and sustained by beautiful national legends. Uh, the context itself was interesting. Giolitti was explaining why he didn't want the Italian archives open to prying scholars wh whose investigations might tend to undermine those beautiful legends. And to be sure, the official version of the so-called Risorgimento was legendary enough. So much of earlier history has been variously understood and misunderstood, uh, written and rewritten, appropriated and misappropriated, used and abused. One could say that very nearly every nationalist movement, and Brexit is very much an English nationalist movement, has partaken of rewritten history, intellectual dishonesty in some degree, and invented tradition. All across 19th century Europe, enthusiasts reconstructed what had been dialects as national languages, uh, rediscovered, or sometimes simply made up, ancient national epics and antique documents on which could be based historic claims for independence <coughs> or old frontiers, irredente, or whatever. Even those earlier Slovene or Slovak enthusiasts, however, might have been impressed by the appetite for dubious history mongering among our Brexiteers. Uh, members of the coyly named European Research Group, of whom Jacob Rees-Mogg is only the most egregious, have tried to <coughs> wring our withers and make our flesh creep by variously, variously citing the Corn Laws, King Henry VIII and King John. Uh, some of these spoonfuls of potted history are quaint or contradictory or plain wrong, but they're all invoked for one purpose. And there's one date more intoxicating than any other. In the British Isles, to use a phrase which itself is now frowned on in some quarters, our Celtic fringes have long been very prolific in this regard, eagerly using the past for the purposes of the present, albeit very often an imaginary past. Uh, the classic case is the invented tradition of the Highlands, about which first Lord Macaulay and then Hugh Trevor Roper wrote most amusingly. Uh, 
this was a confection in any case, but it became far more absurd when it was turned into the purported culture, not only of the highlands and islands, but of the whole country, uh, so that everyone from Fife to Galloway was supposed to wear a kilt and play the bagpipes. In 1821, King George IV was the first Hanoverian monarch to visit Scotland, where he held court at Holyrood and donned a kilt worn over pink tights. Or as Macaulay put it, the king thought that he could not give a more striking proof of his respect for the usages which had prevailed in Scotland before the Union of 1707 than by disguising himself in what, before the Union, was considered by nine Scotchmen out of ten as the dress of a thief. <laughs> yeah. uh, that hasn't stopped the modern Scottish nationalists from, from conjuring up yet more inventions. From the new office of Maka, vaguely like Poet Laureate, a word I've, I've tried to establish the etymology on. I believe it's um, uh, not Gaelic, but uh, Scots Lallans. Uh, to the, that dreadful dirge flower of Scotland, which celebrates the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 and was written about 30 years ago by a Scottish folk singer. It's become a kind of national anthem sung by rugby fans, including one particularly foolish line where Robert the Bruce's men fought for your wee bit hill and glen, although most Scots live and have always lived in the lowlands, far from hills and glens. One might argue, as Trevor Roper did on one occasion, for all his derision, that this misunderstanding of their history and oblivion of their real old intestine differences was less harmful to the Scots than a much more accurate awareness of ancient conflicts has been to the peoples of Ireland. Uh, all of modern Irish nationalism, notably the strain called republicanism, has tried to wish those conflicts away. I mean the conflicts between what used to be called Saxon and Gael in particular, while at the same time exploiting them. The late 18th century Irish rebel Wolf Tone said that Protestant, Catholic and dissenter should discard those identities for the common name of Irishman, words which are intoned quite often by, by those who have uh, spent much of their time en energetically killing Protestants. I mean the Irish Republican Army. Um, for most of the last century, uh, the, the Irish, the, I beg your pardon, the Dublin government made an irredentist claim on Northern Ireland, while for most of those years it was governed by the party called the Soldiers of Destiny, or Fianna Fáil. The Irish national anthem is the sanguinary soldier's song. Mid cannons roar and rifles peal, we'll chant a soldier's song, which begins in Irish Gaelic, Sinna Fianna Fáil. And this is, I think, the only country anywhere where the ruling party's name was sung in the first line of the national anthem. Fianna uh, Fáil and its rival, Fine Gael, or the Band of Gaels, who are in government at the present in Dublin, like Doyle for the Parliament and Taoiseach for the Prime Minister, are all fine pieces of invented tradition, conjured up from the mists of the Middle Ages. 
it would be unkind to say that Ireland is, uh, again, the only country where leaders and parties are given names in a dead language. Uh, but Taoiseach might certainly seem an unfortunate name today. It was chosen or invented in the 1930s and doesn't actually mean prime minister. It means leader, like Duce or Führer, a fashionable type of name at the, line, at the time. Uh, this, this was part of a larger invention seen in the name of republicanism uh, and its claim to the whole island of Ireland. Uh, this republicanism uh, has been continually inspired by dreams of an only partly imaginary past from the incursion of Strongbow and the Anglo-Norman knights in the 12th century to Poyning's Law to the curse of Cromwell and the Battle of the Boyne and the famine. Uh, the implication is that some distant policy, some distant polity lost to English oppression would be restored, although no Irish Republic, in, indeed no Irish state ever existed before the 20th century. Uh, my late friend Fred Halliday, a great scholar of Iran and uh, the Arab world and an Irishman himself, once suggested that if his, if his compatriots really wanted a great national hero to venerate. They should choose him who first created a united Ireland, King Henry VIII. Uh, on the other hand, Orangemen had their own invigorating dreams of the past as they sang about the old cause that gave us our freedoms, religion and laws, and their father's sash, one at Derry and Ochrim, Enniskelin on the Boyne. One hears less of that nowadays, and in any case, uh, Irish Ulster Protestants don't seem very popular in the United States nowadays. Although here's another piece of historical amnesia. Uh, the figures sometimes cited of 20 million Irish Americans, or sometimes even more than that. But most of them are actually uh, what old-fashioned Americans call Scotch-Irish, descended not from the Green Famine Irish who emigrated from the 1840s onwards, but from Ulster Presbyterians who'd emigrated a century earlier. One might add that for all the tragic martyrdom of Catholic Ireland in the century that followed William of Orange's <coughs> victory at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, without King Billy's victory, the United States of America could not possibly exist. And there's something else. Uh, writing about nationalism and national history and who can and can't write it the late E.J. Hobsbawm said that while a proud attachment to either the Irish Catholic or Ulster Protestant tradition might be compatible with the serious study of Irish history, to be a Fenian or Orangeman would not be so compatible in my view, any more than being a Zionist is compatible with writing serious, serious history of the Jews. Uh, the line about Zionist might be debatable, and there aren't many Orangemen writing history nowadays anyway. But there are plenty of books written by self-proclaimed Athenians or Republicans, and those books are without exception worthless. All of that might seem a little harsh, coming from an Englishman, and it might seem a digression. But then my theme is my own country, which needs no lessons in national myth-making. In the forefront of late, have been uh, those Brexiteers, uh, th this knot of uh, fewer than 100 Europhobic Tory MPs in the House of Commons, um, 
who have dictated the political narrative for some time past. Uh, eight years ago, they bullied David Cameron, then newly installed as prime minister, in coalition with the strongly pro-European liberal Democrats, into promising such a referendum if the Tories won an outright parliamentary <coughs> majority at the next election. Um, there have been very few referendums in the United Kingdom. The first was in 1975. Um, despite his earlier reluctance, Harold Wilson called a referendum then on whether we should remain as members of the EC, which we joined uh, t two years earlier under Edward Heath's Tory government. Uh, this was a tactical manoeuvre on Wilson's part to get around divisions within his own Labour Party. And indeed, at the time of the referendum, as two years ago, both of the larger parties were divided from within over the question of Europe. On that occasion in 1975, the vote to remain in the EEC uh, was won easily by the remain, I beg your pardon, the vote to remain was won easily. 30 years later, in the summer of 2004, Tony Blair astonished and horrified his close allies, Europhiles <coughs> all, by promising out of the blue that a referendum would be held on whether to endorse the newly promulgated European Constitution. This was the result of a private deal between Blair and Rupert Murdoch, um, who promised in return the support of his tabloid newspaper, The Sun, in the British general election, which was due to follow the next year, the next spring. In the event that general election coincided with referendums in which the Dutch and more importantly the French rejected the new European constitution. A month after the general election in which Blair was returned to office after a fashion, gaining a parliamentary majority with only 35% of the popular vote, um, Mr Blair told the House of Commons that following the French and Dutch votes there is no point in having a referendum because of the uncertainty it would produce. At that point, Angela Browning, a Tory backbencher, reminded the Prime Minister of what he had told the Sun three weeks earlier. Even if the French voted no, we would have a referendum. That is a government promise. <coughs> when Cameron gave his own promise, he half hoped that he wouldn't have to honour it. But he lacked Wilson's guile or Blair's shamelessness and he found himself trapped. And so to the referendum, the victory of leave, and Cameron's abrupt departure. Had he known a little more history himself, he might have refused to hold a referendum at all in the first place, by way of citing the two outstanding prime ministers since the war, outstanding at any rate in the two prime ministers whose governments changed the country and changed the political landscape. In 1945, Winston Churchill, who was still Prime Minister in the wartime coalition government, wanted to hold a referendum, which would have been the first ever in Great Britain, on extending the life of the Parliament. But Clement Attlee, who was the leader of the Labour Party and was at the time his deputy Prime Minister in that coalition, and who was shortly about <coughs> to rout Churchill and the Tories in the great Labour landslide, replied, I could, not consent to, I could not possibly consent to the introduction into our national life of advice so alien to all our traditions as the referendum, 
which has only too often been used as the instrument of Nazism and fascism. And 30 years later, Margaret Thatcher, who was then <coughs> the newly elected conservative leader of the opposition, said that the late Lord Attlee was right when he said that referendums were the device of dictators and demagogues. This is, uh, these are two cases of a useful citation of history. Um, we don't have fascism in England as yet, or a dictator, but we have plenty of demagogues, and the referendum was an exercise in naked, naked demagogy. This is something that the Brexiteers, not surprisingly, are reluctant to admit. But then there are other problems that seem to elude them for all their delight in parading what they think of as their historical knowledge. A, a number of prominent figures in their ranks are Roman Catholics, um, by upbringing or by conversion. The former Conservative leader, Ian Duncan Smith, the MPs, Sir William Cash and Rees Mogg, were born Catholics, and Charles Moore, sometime editor of The Spectator and Daily Telegraph, for both of which he still writes columns, uh, left the Church of England for the Roman Catholic Church in protest at the ordination of women. <coughs> um, Brexit apart, they're all Thatcherites, or what Keynes would have called laissez-faireies. Um, that is, they favour the untrammeled free enterprise and free market principles of the Manchester School of Economics, which means that their grasp of moral and pastoral theology is as shaky as that of history. They seem not to be aware even that this Manchester School market economic liberal is one of the very few such doctrines to have been specifically and, re and repeatedly condemned by the Vatican, at least since 1891, and Pope Leo XIII's great encyclical, Rerum Novarum. But that's only a small part of their curious and curiously Whiggish and Protestant reading of history. One word which has become beguilingly important to the Brexiteers is vassal or vassalage, which had otherwise disappeared from common currency. Although, as it's been revived, it does speak to a certain sentimental yearning. Uh, th that yearning is sometimes <coughs> harmless enough. Every summer, the BBC promenade concerts at the Albert Hall gives one of the greatest music festivals in Europe. Um, you can buy a season ticket for the proms if you're strong enough to stand through every concert, which I might have been once, but I'm no longer myself, for the entire season for the same price, or rather less than the same price, as a single stall's ticket for the opera festival at Salzburg. Um, it culminates in September with the last night of the proms, a frolicsome event uh, when the audience join in singing patriotic songs with a cheerful lack of irony. <coughs> They still sing Land of Hope and Glory with the lines, Wider yet and further shall thy bounds be set. <laughs> Generations after those bounds uh, stopped being set further and contracted to where they began. And then comes that 18th century tub thumper, Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves whose words by James Thompson didn't show much irony even at the time, 
when, uh, however they might have been, Britain certainly owned and traded plenty of slaves. Uh, for the Brexiteers, Britons never, never, never shall be vassals. Once again, Jacob Rees-Mogg was to the fore. Uh, from a more recent date, he has decried the way uh, Sir Robert Peel repealed the Corn Laws in 1846. Uh, he deplores, that is, the way that Peel enlisted the support of opposition MPs in the House of Commons, despite the defection of a large number of his own Tories. Uh, that was indeed the case, and it was one of the three such episodes in the 19th century, which may have been what Bismarck had in mind with his rule of English politics, that progressive governments take office to pass reactionary measures, while reactionary governments take office to pass progressive measures. The third case, after that second one, was the Second Reform Act in 1867, which expanded the franchise. But the first was the passage of Catholic emancipation in 1829 by the Duke of Wellington's mission ministry. Um, if Mr. Rees-Mogg deplores the repeal of the Corn Laws, then he ought logically to oppose free trade and support uh, uh, the, the protectionist Corn Laws. And by implication, he ought also to sympathize with the high Tory ultras of that time who fought to the end against Catholic emancipation. And he ought to regret that he and his co-religionists are able to practice their faith at all. Not that logic seems to have much to do with it in this Brexit debate. Um, but that's only the most recent example. Uh, Mr. Rees-Mogg takes us back much further to the turn of the 13th century. And he anathematizes the government white paper on terms for departing the European Union by calling it the greatest vassalage since King John paid homage to Philip II at Le Goulet in 1200. <laughs> um, they talk of little else in the pub, pubs of Sunderland and Tlethley, which voted strongly for leave. <laughs> uh, once again, he seems a little selective in his use of history. Uh, King John lost Normandy to the French, it's true, but he also stood up for a time to the papacy which is to say to Innocent III, the most imperious of medieval popes, a Jew and Muslim-hating crusader. But really, listening to Rees-Mogg at that point reminds some of us a certain age of Tony Hancock, uh, the English comedian, with his patriotic peroration. And what of Magna Carta? Did she die in vain? <laughs> <laughs> then we come forward a century to find yet another Brexiteer whispering the last enchantments of the Middle Ages. <coughs> uh, Boris Johnson is the journalist turned politician who served briefly as Foreign Secretary and is at present an apparently serious contender to succeed Theresa May. It's true that there are those uh, like the journalist and historian Sir Max Hastings, once Johnson's editor of the Daily Telegraph, who dismisses his erstwhile colleague as a sexual adventurer and <coughs> charlatan. Although, come to think of it, a glance at the White House suggests that those may not be absolute disqualifications for high office in these strange times. Johnson made another pick out of the historical lucky dip 
to suggest that the authors of the Chequers proposal risk prosecution under the 14th century statute of Primunieri, which says that no foreign court or government shall have jurisdiction in this country. And never mind that the statute of Primunieri was repealed long ago. Uh, then the, the, the Brexiteer romantics move on to the 16th century. When Charles Moore denounced the Archbishop of Canterbury for saying something or other insufficiently patriotic, um, he added that the Archbishop, when looking at Brexit, should, should remember the act in restraint of appeals. After all, if it had not been passed, his church would not exist and he would not be living in Lambeth Palace and making speeches in the House of Lords. That act was part of the process by which England broke with Rome. It was inspired, of course, by Henry VIII's desire to be rid of his wife, Anne Bullen, um, and by which, in the end, England became a fiercely Protestant country. So if he follows his own argument, Moore should presumably <coughs> lament the fact that Jesuits and Roman Catholic country gentlemen are no longer disemboweled at Tyburn. In 1859, I beg your pardon. The first of the Brexiteers, I should say, to have cited the Act in Restraint of Appeals, and forgive my dizziness as, as I continue with these most implausible recitations, um, was Sir John Redwood. Uh, he has been a Tory MP for more than 30 years and had a brief ministerial career, which included a spell of Secretary of State of Wales, for Wales when he tried not at all successfully to sing parrot fashion my hen ulud vun hadai, the rousing Welsh anthem, Land of My Fathers, also sung by rugby fans. And incidentally, much the best of the rugby anthems compared with the Scottish and um, Irish ones, and possibly compared with God Save the Queen. Uh, later, Redwood was part of a plot by Europhobes to overthrow John Major in 1995. Now, he is a man of some <coughs> academic standing, an Oxford history graduate, uh, and PhD, or rather D. Phil, as we say at the old place, a fellow of all souls and the author of Reason, Ridicule and the Age of Enlightenment in England, 1660 to 1750. But if he knows some history, he doesn't let us forget it. He was the first of the Brexiteers to, fight, to cite the 1533 Act in Restraint of Appeals, which claims... By divers sundry old authentic histories and chronicles, it is manifestly declared and expressed that this realm of England is an empire and so hath been accepted in the world. A statement which was at the time entirely untrue. Um, if anything, at that time, England was regarded by the, the rest of Europe as a satellite <coughs> of the empire and Scotland was a rather less important satellite of France. The curious thing is that if this does belong to a, a, a tradition, I won't say of history, but of history mongering, it is one which began to flourish in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries and evolved into what Herbert Butterfield would later and famously denounce as the Whig interpretation of history. Um, it invoked an ancient constitution dating from Anglo-Saxon times <coughs> before the, con the Norman conquest and the Norman yoke under which monarchy had supposedly been contractual in a form guarded by common law and parliament, and which held the kings who broke the contract 
had been rightly brought down from their seats. Edward II in 1327, Richard II in 1399, Charles I in still more dramatic fashion in 1649, and James II in 1688. Uh, the great Elizabethan jurists Edward Cook went even further back when he managed to trace this constitution beyond the Anglo-Saxons to the ancient Britons. Uh, the uh, Act in Restraint of Appeals was toughened up uh, in 1559 by the Act of Supremacy, which has yet again been cited by the Brexiteers. Uh, it was the law which held that no foreign prince, person, prelate, state or potentate hath or ought to have any jurisdiction, power, superiority, preeminence or authority, ecclesiastical or spiritual within this realm. This was the first year of Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, a reign which has been woven into the very tapestry of English beautiful national legend. Um, uh, the, it, it may have been a misfortune, I sometimes think, that the greatest of English writers lived in that reign. Michael <coughs> Billington of The Guardian, uh, who's the outstanding theatre critic of our time, in my view, has plausibly suggested that it's the history plays rather than the tragedies <coughs> which we should regard as the pinnacle of Shakespeare's genius. And yet those great plays are what Hollywood calls flag wavers, or frankly agitprop on behalf of the Tudor dynasty, and they give a grossly tendentious version of 14th and 15th century history. Other later and lesser writers would extol the sea dogs of good Queen Bess's reign. In Victorian days, Tennyson wrote The Revenge with its tale of Sir Richard Greville and his heroism, sink me the ship, master gunner, sink her, split her in twain, fall into the hands of God, not into the hands of Spain. It has occurred to me that Theresa May might sometimes have thought while going into meetings with the European leaders of the next line, and they praised him to his face with their courtly foreign grace. Not that she's been getting much praise herself recently. Then Sir Henry Newbold beat Drake's drum. Drake's in his hammock a thousand miles away, but if the dons sight Devon, He'll quit the port of heaven and drum them up the channels we drummed them long ago. Of course, none of those could touch the heights of Shakespeare in Henry V. Cry God for Harry, England and St. George. A patriotic legend has been often conjured up before now and before these recent events, and in better causes. It was not by accident that Laurence Olivier's movie of Henry V was made in 1944, just as another English army was fighting in Normandy. And, the, and on the 6th of June that year, there were English infantry subalterns who steeled themselves as their landing craft approached Juno Beach with the thought, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. It seems almost churlish at this point uh, to observe that Drake and those other Elizabethan sea dogs were in fact pirates and that King Henry was a war criminal whose slaughter of the French prisoners at Agincourt horrified Christian Europe at the time. Nevertheless, so potent are memories of Shakespeare's age that when our present queen acceded to the throne in 1952, there was much excited chatter in the press about a new Elizabethan age. 
And as that great historian, Sir Michael Howard, said, this was truer than those who used the phrase at the time knew. For once again, we were, as we had been then, a power of the second rank, teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and punching far beyond our weight in international affairs. But one date above all others overshadows, I beg your pardon, <coughs> one date overshadows any other in the great romance of Brexit. His life stopped in 1940, says Hester, the heroine of Terence Rattigan's play Flight Path, talking about her faithless, sodden lover, a former fighter pilot. He loved 1940, you know. There were some like that. Well, yes, Winston Churchill was certainly like that, and so are his implausible epigones of UKIP and the ERG. But then it sometimes seems that we English all love 1940. It's become our most powerful, beautiful national legend. And too often, one feels that our life as a nation stopped in 1940, as Esther puts it, and that we've never come to terms with that heroic moment. If a study in beautiful national legends, rewritten history and invented tradition were needed, it would be the way that different countries have dealt with the legacy of the World War, which ended in 1945. Uh, the, the English are by no means unique in their capacity for invented tradition or rewritten history. Uh, the most remarkable, perhaps, was Charles de Gaulle's legend that the French people, apart from a handful of cowards and traitors, had been united in their determination to resist the German conqueror and the German occupation. The more somber truth is that for most of the war, <coughs> most French people may have been subjective resistors in wishing to be rid of the Germans, but most were objective collaborators in the sense of accepting the occupation. Uh, plenty of Frenchmen and women actively collaborated with, German, in, with the Germans in their most terrible crimes, a truth that took the French Republic not years but generations to acknowledge. And military historians have pointed out the striking fact that between 1939 and 1945, more French soldiers fought on the side of the Axis than of the Allies. In the course of creating a new democratic German Federal Republic, it wasn't so much convenient as essential to exaggerate the importance of the so-called German resistance and to overlook the fact, which has been more recently di dissected by much German scholarship, that very many of those who served that Federal Republic had formerly served the Third Reich, some of them in senior positions and with shameful records. The Russians had no need to create a myth of military valour since it was a matter of historical fact that the Wehrmacht was defeated by the Red Army. But Stalin added his own legend when he insisted that after this war, no one dared anymore to deny the vitality of the Soviet state system and thus that victory had validated uh, his five-year plans, slave labor and all. Much less recognized, I suggest, has been the American version, the slow, subtle process of turning that war into the good war. If you visit the remarkable National Museum of World War II in New Orleans, for example, with its extraordinary collection of aircraft, tanks and landing craft, you might easily leave under the impression that the war 
had been simply a contest between the United States and the Third Reich. And this connects, I think, with the extravagant American cult of Winston Churchill, uh, now well nigh seen as the man who inspired the American people to resist Hitler and then led him to victory against him. What's been obscured by this is the fact that for most of the American people, for most of the years from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay, the war meant the war in the Pacific. And as Dwight MacDonald said at the time, uh, not the least ironical aspect of this most ironical of wars it was the fact that the war in the Pacific has always been more popular with all classes of Americans than the war in Europe. Since it was, as he said, impossible to portray that conflict with Japan as a good war rather than a straightforward imperial contest for mastery, a steady, subtle revision was necessary over many years <coughs> to turn the war in one might say in movie terms, from uh, the sounds of Iwo Jima to Saving Private Ryan. Uh, and yet, no other country, I think I can say without any patriotic pride of my own, has matched our beautiful national legend in England. Iconic has become an I an annoying vogue word, as the great H.W. Fowler of modern English usage would have called it. But sometimes it's apt enough, and an iconography of Sir Winston Churchill could be compiled. By now, it's hard to keep count of the times that Churchill's visage has appeared on the front page of The Sun and the Daily Mail, our two most popular tabloids, urging Brexit in one way or another. One word is the, yes indeed, iconic photograph of Churchill taken by Karsh of Ottawa in 1941, um, angrily defiant. And another is the statue by Ivor Robert Jones, which broods over Parliament Square. I don't know if you know it or that, I, I don't, I'm so sorry, I don't, I haven't prepared myself for a TED talk, so if you haven't seen it, it is a huge statue of Churchill leaning forward, wearing a greatcoat with his shoulders hunched, looking towards the Palace of Westminster. Um, I passed not long ago a, a very superior art dealer in St. James's when I was leaving the London Library and noticed beyond the plate glass at the back where there were three Renoirs, I think, but in the front was Churchill, and it was a bronze replica of the, of the maquette from which the statue in Parliament Square was made. It's about that high. Uh, these bronze replicas have been cast in bronze, uh, 500 of them. Uh, they are on sale for £175,000 each, or just under $200,000. And I worked out that that came to about $80 million if they're all sold, which they may very well be. Not, not only is the Churchill cult a remarkable phenomenon, the Churchill business is what we call a nice little earner. <laughs> only the other day, there was a photograph in the newspaper of a man sitting in front of that statue in Parliament Square, draped in a Union Jack, across which were the words, leave means leave. 
That phrase, by the way, was coined by Theresa May uh, at, after the time she became uh, uh, Prime Minister. Uh, I was delighted the following summer, therefore the summer of 2017, when dining at my old Oxford College, New College, to run into Robin Lane Fox, the eminent ancient historian, and he told me something that cheered me up, that in the previous term's mod paper, mods is the fifth term examining classical moderations, Latin and Greek, which precedes the subsequent exam called greats, and it, it contains a logic paper, and that term, one of the questions in the logic paper had been, quote, leave means leave. Uh, I beg your pardon. It didn't, wasn't leave me. Quote, the, her other phrase, Brexit means Brexit. The, the, the exam paper question was, quote, Brexit means Brexit. Analyze this statement and discuss what meaning it has, if any. <laughs> uh, I felt a little flicker of pride in my old university. <laughs> Much of the blame lies with Churchill himself. He said that summer of 1940 that we are fighting by ourselves alone, but not for ourselves alone. And later he spoke about the time when we were alone. Uh, not a few people have been reminded lately of David Lowe's famous cartoon published immediately after Dunkirk. A Tommy on the cliffs of Dover, a rifle to his side, punching the air with the defiant words, very well alone. Uh, it was a coincidence, happier for some than others, that the movies Dunkirk and Darkest Hour, both set in 1940, came out a year after the referendum. And in the same year, 2017, there was another film called Churchill, set in 1944, which came and went and is, I think, now forgotten. Um, both of those movies are pretty good travesties of history. Darkest Hour, preposterously so. And they've had an effect far from what their makers intended, with Charles Moore yet again acclaiming Darkest Hour as a splendid Brexit film. It's no pedantic quibble to point out that we weren't alone, even in 1940. Uh, we had the countries of the Commonwealth uh, fighting with us voluntarily. Uh, we had many hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the Indian Army, all volunteers. Uh, we had the exiled governments and fighting forces of the European countries which had been conquered by Germany, from the Polish and Czech fighter pilots who helped win the Battle of Britain to the Dutch and Norwegian sailors who helped win the Battle of the Atlantic. And in any case, the most pernicious myth of all, which I think really has grown during my lifetime, was that we won the war. Face it, general, said the writer Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, deflating de Gaulle's own self-promoted national legend. France was defeated and our allies won. Something of the same might have been said to Churchill, if anyone had been brave enough to say so. Instead, there was an intense mixture of pride and relief when victory came, followed by a very slow realization 
that the fruits of victory for the British were by no means all sweet, as fi financial crisis was followed by imperial retreat and then by comparative, comparative economic decline, and finally today, national paralysis. After 1918, the Italian nationalist Gabriele D'Annunzio coined the phrase <coughs> Vittoria Mutilata. Italy had won the war, he said, <coughs> entirely wrongly, but lost the peace. And behind, because it had not acquired the territorial gains, which had been most corruptly promised secretly by the other allies during the war. Uh, behind the rage of the Brexiteers lies a sense that we too had suffered a mutilated victory. Now, cutting ourselves off from Europe, as we did at Dunkirk in a rather different way, means that we can somehow redeem that humiliation. The Third Reich did not last a thousand years, nor did Churchill's British Empire last a thousand years. Whether there is any real purpose invoking, as Hugh Gateskill did, a thousand years of history seems at present very doubtful. One of the true heroes of 1940 was Sir Henry Tizard, a physicist, president of Magdalen College, Oxford, and not least a great patriotic <coughs> Englishman who may be said without exaggeration to have helped save his country. He was a go-between, uh, that is, between the scientists of Academe and the officials of Whitehall, and without his work in ensuring that radar was installed around the coastline, the Battle of Britain might have been lost in 1940. Nine years later, he wrote a minute which the Brexiteers with all their dreams of past glory, from this realm of England is an empire to very well alone, might have heeded. We persist in regarding ourselves as a great power, Tizard wrote in 1949, <coughs> capable of everything and only temporarily handicapped by economic difficulties, which is precisely what the Brexiteers say today. <coughs> we are not a great power, he went on, and never will be again. We are a great nation, but if we continue to behave like a great power, <clears throat> we shall soon cease to be a great nation. That could be an epigraph or epitaph for my country's story during my lifetime, culminating in our latest national nervous breakdown. At times of crisis, myths have their historical importance, Churchill <laughs> said in 1940. And to be sure, he was right then. But at other times of crisis, myths can be dangerous or even disastrous. Thank you.